Hello, everyone, and welcome to my podcast, Body Justice. I started this podcast because I believe that all bodies are good bodies. All bodies are deserving, worthy, and all bodies are whole, just as they are. In today's world, it's ever hard to embody this as our truth. My mission is to create a space to process body image, eating disorders, and relationships through a justice-oriented lens. I'm a licensed therapist in California and an eating disorder survivor myself. I know what it's like to be at war with myself and also to find peace again. Thank you for being here and I look forward to being your host. justice. I know it's been a minute. Um, I have been lining up some wonderful interviews for 2022, so I'm so excited to do another year of podcasting. Yay, it's been such a journey. Um, So today we're going to talk to a wonderful guest named Dr. Hortensia Jimenez. Um, I found her on Instagram, like I find a lot of my interviewees. She has a PhD in sociology, and she's a certified health coach. She is full-time tenured sociology professor and is currently working on a co-edited um, undergrad book on Latinx studies. Her work really centers on dismantling diet culture from a social and racial justice framework um, and helping Latinx communities heal their relationship with food. So today we're going to be talking about foodscapes, what they are, how they impact um, poor working class person of color communities. Um, We're going to talk about appropriation of cultural food um, and diet culture within the Latinx community. So without further ado, let's get into it. Um, As you know, You can check out my online recovery course. Um, The link is in the show notes. You can also find it in my Instagram bio at bodyjustice.therapist. This course is made to help fast track your recovery journey with lots of tools and education. It's a really good adjunct to therapy. Um, It's self-paced. My mission is for it to make it to make recovery accessible to all. So if you need a discount code, please DM me. I offer discounts to BIPOC and LGBTQ plus folks. Anyways, that's all. Let's get started. Here is Dr. Hortensia. Can you tell listeners a little bit about you, how you identify, and what you're passionate about? Yes. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me to your podcast to share a little bit about myself and my passion. I am um, first and foremost in um, Ohlone, Esalen uh, land. Land acknowledgement is so important. I am a Mexican immigrant from an indigenous background and who I am in terms of my ethnic and racial identity really in the US really shapes how I see the world and my lens. Uh, And that goes into what I'm passionate about. I'm really passionate about social and racial justice. And those are broad, right? Broad concepts and we'll leave them as broad. (laughs) But that just means, you know, that every individual should be treated with dignity and respect regardless of their sexuality, race, ethnicity, immigration status, you know, and so forth. 
Um, I am a, a sociology professor, so I am passionate. I am in love with sociology. It is my calling, my field. Sociology is the study of people and society, like my elevator talk, right? It's super easy. <laughs> but really, it's just understanding the individual in relationship to society and vice versa. Mm -hmm. And so for me, like why I'm passionate about sociology is that it provided me with the tools and the language to really articulate my experience as I was growing up as an, an undocumented immigrant and then becoming legal and my my place in U.S. society like I, I it gave me and that's so powerful and very transformational and and it, I feel like I had a veil and as an undergrad and I had like all these uh-huh uh-huh moments like wow like wow like I this is amazing. Like if I'm able to trans understand and have this transformation in my life, like, and the impact I can have in society, I can only imagine how I can also impact the lives of other students and people in the community. And so I went and pursued my undergraduate master's and PhD in sociology. And it's such a very broad field. And so the areas that I am uh, an expert or my expertise are in race and ethnicity, intersectionality. And I've done a lot of publishing around race and immigration. And most recently, it's not like this is new. Like I have, I'm in love with food. That's my other passion. And so I became a certified health coach uh, about I don't know, more than five years ago, mm -hmm. but my, in terms of my um, profession as a sociologist, I'm really interested now as I go through different phases of research is um, I'm really interested in the understanding of food, uh, food and sociology and specifically within the lens of a health coach, which I see is missing in the anti-dieting discussions, um, bringing in this like racial justice perspective. Yes. I know it was a little long. <laughs> no, I love it. The context is so great. And yeah, for anyone listening, this is this is how I found Dr. Hortensia was because we both kind of look at this intersection of social justice and how that relates to food and bodies. And yeah, I think you're doing amazing and very important work. Thank you. How did you, you know, start to get interested in working with folks on healing their relationship to food? Yes. Well, first and foremost, uh, speaking from personal experience, I think sometimes we need to be vulnerable, right, uh, in our experiences. Uh, and part of that is my own struggle. I didn't have like really, I don't want to like put it in a scale, like really bad body image, like just like many youth, you know, like many women, you know, I had body issues and um, not so much um, food, the shaming with food was there, you know, in my home. But, um, you know, when I got to college, I did some, uh, I did like, you know, some diets. And then I, I went, you know, through different journeys and trying to figure out health and body and all these, you know, toxic narratives. Um, so like in understanding, like, why am I passionate and what is my relationship? It really first comes with my own struggles it's like how also embracing my culture of foods growing up was not really a problem it becomes a problem when you start hearing all these messages from society right from the media from pop culture and um 
I, and I, you know what? It's funny. Okay. I still think like the, the thigh gap, I'm like, excuse me. I was like, shit, I don't have it. Like <laughs> yeah. I never had it. And you know what? I've been thinking about it. I just, cause I guess we're going to have our podcast. I'm like, that was an issue growing up. It's like, I, which in English means like I have chunky thighs, you know, mm-hmm. like I, I think I have nice legs, but growing up, I really didn't embrace that because I didn't fit that norm. Right. So like, mm-hmm. that's just an example of the body image, like one little issue. Right. Yes. <laughs> so it really starts off with, with me, like why um, I'm interested is because I went through my own journey and it, we're not even talking about the layers of race and of social class, right? And immigration and language, like all that impacts your identity growing up. So all that's layered but to say that, you know, it, it starts with me and then realizing that there's a lack of representation. I am, of course, not representing the diversity of Latinx, you know, communities, you know, but I do speak from experience as a Latina and a Latina immigrant, as a brown woman, you know, as a woman growing up in the U.S., you know, having all those perspectives, I think, you know, pretty unique. I can speak from the immigrant indigenous experience, and I can speak from, like, what it means growing up in the U.S., right? So I want to provide and be a, a space for other women who can hopefully see themselves in me and see themselves represented, because that's what I don't see in social media. Mm-hmm. I absolutely agree, and the intersections are so interesting um similar to you with like how you you became curious when you you went into the world of sociology and like kind of it sounds like your eyes started opening and I had a such a similar experience because it's like you finally get a name for why you feel the way you do about yourself and other people and yes like our racial identity impacts the way we see our bodies so much, like even if you haven't had like direct um, experiences of like overt racism, Mm -hmm. just seeing that other, not seeing that representation, like you said, or seeing similar bodies um, in your community being like looked down on when that relates to yourself. And so Mm -hmm. I grew up in this super white area and being mixed race, even though I'm pretty light skinned, I just remember feeling so out of place and like wanting to hide my cultural foods. Like didn't want my friends to come to my house and see that we eat rice and not potatoes, you know, like I was embarrassed and yeah, Yeah. it shouldn't be that way. You're going to make me cry. There's so much pain, right? There's so much healing there, especially, you know, when come from a a historically marginalized community if you're you know biracial or multiracial like there's a a lot of struggles already in your identity and trying to fit in and sometimes you end up doing things that ultimately like will hurt your well-being your mental physical Mm well-being so thank you for sharing that it is it's very powerful we cannot detach our identities our racial or ethnic or sexual identities and sometimes i feel like the discussions in in Instagram on health and wellness and the anti-dieting as as amazing as they are and pushing forward these amazing conversations I feel that there's still you know that that that's lacking (laughs) there totally yes and when I went to grad school I started learning about I went to grad school in New Mexico and so um, I had a lot more diversity than where I grew up which was great And I started learning about like racial and ethnic identity development. And then when I looked, I started thinking like, 
you know what? Yeah, that's that's where for me it started that detaching from myself because I wanted to like assimilate to the majority. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that just when we detach from our bodies, like that totally interrupts our relationship to food because yeah. we're not even, or at least for me, it got to a point where like I didn't even want to acknowledge my body or listen to it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's like this erasure of your identity. You're trying to erase so that you can conform because you've been, we've been conditioned, right? So it's important to acknowledge these external processes and mechanisms that impact us. And that, you know, those decisions that you, you know, that's why I tell my students, and it's a healing journey of being in class is you're healing with your ethnic and racial identity and all the stuff that society is causing to detach. And then, like you said, ultimately it's going to affect our well-being and our relationship with food because food is part of our culture. Yes, absolutely. What are some of the unique, um, child or how do you, how would you say your Latinx identity shaped your relationship to food? Yes. Uh, well, you know, <laughs> there's these like, well, we honestly, to be really candid with you, food has been historically racialized and as a sociologist, I understand I'm, I'm going to be talking about these, you know, these important topics in, in my Instagram, um, because they're missing uh, the connection between migration and food and race. It's really loaded. So I got to take care of myself first. But just to sort of begin that conversation with you um, is understanding that food has historically been racialized just as immigrants. So there's a lot of like anti-immigrant rhetoric, nativism. When we connect, they're intricately connected, you know, seeing immigrants as a threat to the nation state or in society. Yet we celebrate and we embrace the food, right? So there's this, con- like it's conditional, right? And it's very problematic in many ways and and how food then becomes like culturally appropriated which I know we're going to be talking about but going back this kind of goes in a a circle to your question of your Latinx identity and food because I see myself as an immigrant I've been racialized in this country I understand the rhetoric as Latino the Latino threat at least in the literature right in academic literature the, the narrative of Latinos as taking jobs away as uh, illegal aliens, like very dehumanizing discourse. And I am an immigrant and our former, you know, mm-hmm. our former president didn't like field this anti-immigrant rhetoric. And so as an immigrant, you think like, well, you know, we're not welcome. We're not desired. We are only desired for our labor and our mm-hmm. food but not like for other contributions that we make in this country. So it like food is political, right? So my identity is political. Like who I am as an individual by default is already like revolutionary and political. So Mm -hmm. it is connected to food. Like just, just, I cannot detach them, right? I cannot disconnect them and say, there's no meaning associated to food and like Latinx identity and how I'm racialized in this country. Yeah, there's no way it's like not connected. Yeah, it it goes back so far. Like um, I recently was learning about how, I don't remember what year this was, but when when the US made laws about like, it was like anti-immigration laws for for Chinese people. And uh, do you you probably know all about this? (laughs) Yeah, and like one of the only ways that Chinese people could immigrate here was to, if they had a Chinese restaurant mm-hmm. and which 
okay, that's great. Like, but yeah, it's like what you're saying that um, you're only valuable for food that you can produce. Like not, and these were people that had degrees and engineers and doctors that were only allowed to be restaurant workers. Yeah, you know, and and I I kind of began the conversation with being intentional and making that connection with like food is political and food is racialized and that's part of my Latinx identity, right? So like at the big macro perspective, but at the micro, at the more individual food, you know, uh, how does it shape my relationship? It's part of my connection to my ancestry, my food ways, my values, my my love, um, the love language. And that's like the vibrancy, the beauty of our cultural food. So I just also want to say the good things, right? (laughs) My relationship with food is just like this amazing connection. It's just the love and affection. And food tells a story, tells a history and a history of resistance, a history of, of, of richness, of culture, of even religion is connected to, you know, to food and the values. Mm-hmm. I feel that so much when I cook like my grandmother's recipes from our Indonesian side or the Mexican side of me. Um, I do feel so much more connected to it. Um, it yeah. feels nourishing on like a soul level. Yes, nailed it. It's yeah. nourishing for the soul. <laughs> yes. So what are some of the unique challenges when it comes to diet culture and disorder eating within the Latinx community? Yes. So uh, again, to just, you know, uh, remind our, our community here that Latinx community is very diverse. <laughs> we yes. have different food. It's just there, we're not a one homogeneous group. So, you know, speaking just in general, I think about um, first, I want to sort of address like the body image um, of like women, like Latinx women, specifically if you're like brown and, and Afro-Latina, right? Mm-hmm. And you're queer, right? So understanding that intersectionality and, and as you're growing up as a young young woman, you know, um, and might not fit certain, um, you know, heteronormative and ideas and, you know, and these binaries, that's like, that's one huge one. And I tell you by experience as a professor, because I see this in my community college students who are trying to navigate, they're trying to to live in a society that is very patriarchal and very heteronormative when they're exploring their sexual, you know, ethnic and racial identity, like that's so stressful already, right? Mm-hmm. And so when we think about when you said eating disorders um, and why, how, how is this unique? Like those are not unique experiences, right? Like those are common, but what makes it sort of unique is again, the, the cultural component and the racial component and the sexual and religious components too, because religion has a big impact on, on our bodies and the social, social and, and sexual control that the family as an institution does, right? So mm-hmm. that is definitely unique. Uh, yes and no, unique to Latinx, but it's very common among other um, marginalized communities, a global majority, which we're using that term now, right? Instead of minority, we are saying the global ma- majority, right? So that's kind of common of color. <laughs> It's really common to other women of color, right? Mm-hmm. So we share all these similar experiences, yet like culturally, maybe like being Catholic and not like the regulation of sexuality. Like you can't like, even how you dress, mm-hmm. like how what you show, how much you show, can you wear shorts? I'm not kidding, okay? Like all that sexual regulation, like, so how are you supposed to explore your sexuality if you're, you know, you're 
queerness like when you can't you're not allowed to you're there's sins mm -hmm. so that's like the body part right but then the body image components and like you know we said representation matters not seeing yourself represented and when you are represented you're overrepresented in the stereotypes you're misrepresented as as latinx as afro latinas you know women of color and it's oftentimes in a sexual right away by pop culture by you know the media and magazines teen sex all this stuff right so that then we go to ideas about like trying to conform to western white beauty standards of thinness uh don't not reflect the diversity and uh and fullness of of latinx in the u.s mm -hmm. absolutely i agree with all that and thank you so much for sharing your perspective on that um i couldn't yeah i couldn't agree more i think in some ways with my own like side of my mexican family um it seemed it felt like there was more flexibility in my body changing and growing, like it was more celebrated, um, which is wonderful. But then that wasn't like the message I received in the dominant culture, you know? So it was like really confusing. Yeah. Um, I love how you say that, you know, um, and as a parent, right? I'm a, I'm a mother of three kids, two teens and one 10 year old. And like you said, like, it is very normal that our body changes and it fluctuates like hello it's not static mm -hmm. right but uh in in the latinx community you know there's a lot of we gotta name it there's a lot of homophobia there's a lot mm -hmm. of fat phobia and there's a lot of um uh, what is it what's the other one that are really a fat i said a fat phobia i said homophobia and i mean there's definitely colorism mm -hmm. within latinx too lighter skin is better than darker yeah. skin right those are that's very common among all communities this is a global phenomenon right it's not unique mm -hmm. to one community but that really how can then you celebrate the changes of your body and how you're exploring how you dress and you know and behave you're not you're shamed mm -hmm. And yes. that's going to have an impact on your food. You're then you're not going to eat. You're not mm -hmm. going to eat certain foods because you don't want to gain weight, or you don't want to eat those foods because you're embarrassed to eat burritos and tacos, mm -hmm. and you'd rather take peanut butter and jelly. <laughs> mm -hmm. Exactly, I remember that so much. Like feeling so embarrassed of my family's food, and then not eating it for so many years, and it makes me so sad to think about now. Like. Now, when I have friends over, I will cook them all my cultural foods and just like embrace it. But yeah, when when you don't see bodies like yours, when you don't see food like yours, like it just makes you feel like something's wrong with you. Yeah. And, you know, I think you would agree, right, that we are seeing that we, we're seeing that uh, diversity in the foods and we've got to think the hangs the health at every size um, movement and intuitive eating and anti-dieting like and and creating these platforms but when you're not on social media or like then there's still so much work right mm -hmm. we need to see those posters in the schools right and like institution notes we need to see this we need to see this representation beyond just like instagram or or, or certain yeah. spaces you know I, I i just feel it's not being pessimistic i just i just feel that not everyone uh, can has access to these images or yeah. this diversity that is happening yeah and we have like a little bubble on instagram and to find that i feel like you have to already be kind of thinking in this way right like it's not like the mainstream 
mm-hmm. thing that everyone sees. That's- so it's not getting to the people it probably really needs to get to. Yeah. Uh, so gosh, <laughs> what are, I know we wanted to talk about foodscapes. Can you tell us what are foodscapes sure. and what are their dynamics institutionally and organizationally? Yes. And you know, when I was thinking like, okay, well, what are we going to talk about? And I couldn't help to think about my community where I live. Um, and, and then and then sometimes what we share or what, what content we create that is connected to certain communities, but then it's disconnected, that there's always this sort of tension. And, and I wanna definitely talk about that and address that. Um, but there's different definitions of foodscapes depending on who, what scholar you ask from a like geographer, sociologist, anthropologist, but don't worry, you know, it all comes down to, <laughs> to like to understanding uh, a foodscape really is some say like the connection between food and the environment. We're talking here about the physical, the economic, the political, the cultural components of uh, food, access to food. We as consumers, um, producers of food, you know, it's basically part of the food system. Yeah. Uh, the idea of preparing and uh, preparing, consuming, you know, preparing and consuming and the food but what I want to really kind of just address with foodscapes is like the in ethnic communities I live in Monterey County I live in the central coast predominantly um, Latinx farm workers you know we I live in the salad world of the I live in the salad bowl which is a salad (laughs) world I I just I got that all wrong I live in the salad I live in Salinas which is known as a salad a bowl of the world Mm. which we produce the the agriculture is like a a multi-billion industry in California it's like huge and I live in that community like I am so proud to be an immigrant and to be um, surrounded by farm workers but going to these foodscapes I think about uh, like the east side where we have all these ethnic grocery stores Um, a lot of the food staples from Mexico you know some from Central America that people have access to I think also about um, the convenience stores, fast food places. So, you know, part of the foodscape is the landscape mm. and the access to food, right? So while I see the, 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 the importance of all these ethnic grocery stores, I also see how problematic it is to have pawn shops, to have a lot of fast foods, not to have um, other um, stores that can provide perhaps other uh, options for food. Yeah. I don't want to like, label it as healthy. I just I like to provide more diversity in foods other than what we already have, you know? So um, I think about that. And then I think about the other parts of town and where you have organic or where you can buy the same more expensive, you know, yeah. it's conventional, right? All these are part of foodscapes. So foodscapes can also like be unequal. And, you know, this is where we go into this topic of like foodscapes are unequal. Also, like it also depends on your social class, your socioeconomic status. There's a lot of uh, layers, like even the gender dynamic component, like who has access to the foodscapes, who can go, who can purchase, who does a cooking and, you know, all that stuff. Mm. So foodscapes are kind of like the landscape of food in any geographic area influenced by the, you know, so yes. all the intersections. So she yes. Okay. yes, yes. All those intersections we're looking at, like, well, economically, politically, 
culturally like I, I kind of focus on the cultural aspect of the foodscapes right because when you know you're you you know when you know when you're in an ethnic community right yes yes you know when you're driving and you get lost you're either somewhere like it looks like there's a lot of Asians because you're seeing a lot of like Asian grocery stores <laughs> or like mom and pop shops yes yes you know but that's when we say like the ethnic you know that would be an ethnic like foodscape but just in general right the the uh, idea of uh these foodscapes is these like grocery stores convenience stores um um community gardens um you know it's the landscape of where you can have uh, and have access to food yeah. or not even a food desert is a yeah. well food desert or a food apartheid that's part of the foodscape too Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that has so many implications, right? Because I'm just thinking if from like how within like healthism, there's all this rhetoric about like individual responsibility to, you know, eat healthier and not address the other yeah. issues that could. And so yeah. when we're thinking about like poor working class communities of color, if this foodscape is fast food, um, mm-hmm. it's not realistic to, to think that someone can work probably a really long day and then drive to the next town to go get a quote unquote healthier meal. Like mm-hmm. so much, go- you can probably articulate this better than me because I'm just now thinking of this for the first time, but I'm just thinking about how that, yeah, we, we blame individuals so much and don't look at like what's contributing to what's yeah. available. Absolutely. So when yeah, think about like um, foodscapes. I invite you to think about the social and, and culture component, and it's just a lot to unpack. And um, it's just like thinking about how ethnic communities are started and how grocery stores not only are providing like the service or providing the commodity, the products, right? But culturally, these products, some of these are connections to the homeland. So we want to think about culture, that culture, how do we sustain our connections to our home countries when you can't go because you're undocumented and you've been living here for 20 or 30 yeah. years? That's deep. Mm-hmm. So one of the ways is through these foodscapes, through these where the communities where you live, where you have that access to the food, not only you're not, that's your connection to your homeland by purchasing, by buying, you know, the tacos mm-hmm. or the corn or the people who are selling on the street, you know, like, because that happens in my community here, right? So the social and cultural component, but also being critical about food access and the structural inequalities, yeah. right? And poverty. And again, thinking about race and immigration and how even in Monterey County, we have a shortage of housing and um, there's a lot of farm workers that are housed in uh, apartments that were recently created. And I am thinking about, they don't have access to foodscapes. Right. Um, and I, and, you know, I want to talk about these conversations on Instagram, you know, and I see that and it, it just pains me and I, makes me want to cry these are farm workers who are brought from Mexico with their visas and they are housed in an apartment and they're picked up from their contractor they're taken to the fields to work I see them on the weekend they're walking Mm -hmm. they're walking to go buy some food I see them with their grocery bags you know and you know and it's like maybe um there's no grocery store Mm-hmm. where they're located in some of these areas and so 
they don't have access to foodscapes. They have access to the taqueria. They have access to Walmart, but they have to walk about a mile and a half. So you think they're going to carry like five bags of groceries, right. right? And this is real. This is real stuff. So we're talking about structural inequalities, you know? Yes. Oh my gosh. That's such a good point. The people in there, the people that are actually doing the work agriculturally and, and not yeah. being taken care of or given mm-hmm. the same access. Mm-hmm. It's- and that's, this is a real, this is an issue that we have here in Monterey County and it's not unique to Monterey County. And, you know, yeah. there's a shortage of housing in the U.S. There's, you know, the, and housing is so expensive. And when you're an immigrant, you're undocumented, you're a farm worker, depending on where you live you know so right. yeah and and some you know some farm workers of course we, you know farm workers live everywhere all over the city but I'm, I'm giving this example of a recently um you know apartment that was created specifically for farm workers and I pass through there all the time and I'm like man there's no access to the grocery store here they have to get the contractor's van and I see them when they come back you know and with their groceries and everything but it's they're not free. They don't have that freedom and access right. to buy the food. Mm-hmm. That's a problem. That's, That's a big okay. problem. Oh, um, yeah. So I so guess that's how I want to end foodscapes. Like it's great, but it's, it's you know <laughs> there are all these structural barriers and challenges. <laughs> what do you think needs to? I mean, so much needs to change. But like, what would be like starting points to make things more accessible? um to communities well, of color in particular yes well you know housing housing that it, housing that is um in proximity to you know grocery stores not just like the convenience stores the convenience stores are expensive you yeah. know there's a lot of liquor stores that have like a uh, you know like the produce section but it's more expensive mm-hmm. and you know, you know so like I, yeah definitely having having more access to food having community gardens so that people mm. who want to and are able to cultivate their food um, and their their produce can can do so if people people will make decisions based on the accessibility right mm. and oftentimes those decisions are contingent on their social class so we have to talk about salaries have to talk about the minimum wage right mm-hmm. others structural stuff people need to get paid better so that they can be able to to purchase uh, agree it goes so so much back to just like body privilege and and racism because like ideally we would have like some type of government funding that would put like community gardens and accessible grocery stores in these places but that would mean our governments would have to prioritize undocumented people of color and we know that that's not something that the dominant culture, um, or at least the leaders in our country, most of them do not value. So it's such a big systemic issue. Yes, absolutely. And and I think this conversation that we're both having, this is missing on the anti-diet, yes. right? And I will be addressing this slowly, you know, um, because, you know, <laughs> I work full time and I, you know, I can't say everything at once, right? <laughs> but, no. 
Well, I'm so glad you are doing this work though and like putting it out there because just hearing you talk about it is getting me really fired up. <laughs> I know, I feel like, oh, I'm not, not that I'm angry and I don't want to feel like, you know, as a woman of color, you always think like, okay, the stereotype of like the angry black or Latina woman, you know, is like, well, it's not that I'm angry. It's just like, I feel I have all this, yeah. <laughs> that I share, you know, and, um, but then you, you also sort of want to be careful. I don't know. I, I, I hate, I hate stereotypes and I hate how, how stereotypes affect us. And they, um, I feel that not that it, they prevent us, they limit stereotypes, limit us sometimes, yes. you know, there's a lot of undoing and a lot of healing for that too. Yeah. I'm behind you on that because I'm, <laughs> I, I find myself just really angry a lot of the time about this stuff, but I think that's because it's like, if, if anger happens, when our boundaries are crossed, like these are our people that our boundaries have been crossed collectively. So it makes sense that we would be angry in response to it. Um, yeah, yeah, we can't detach our emotions, right? No, Just no. <sighs> so <laughs> you recently posted on Instagram about what happens when cultural foods become trendy. Can you share a little bit about that and how that impacts communities of color? Yeah, um, I, you know, again, thinking about uh, food and how also food is uh, celebrated, how food is nourishing, how we enjoy and trying new foods, ethnic foods. It's like you're trying the food, you're trying, you're trying, you're being exposed to the culture via the food, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's one thing, but it's also like an invitation to, to getting to know those communities, those immigrant communities or those ethnic communities beyond the food. Mm -hmm. but, you know, there's, so, okay, why am I saying that? Because that's when we think about the cultural appropriation of food. And like, on the one hand, you like the food, but you're not taking the time to get to know the communities, the histories of these communities, mm -hmm. and then you are healthifying the food and you're appropriating it without having an understanding and acknowledgement to even the land, you know, mm -hmm. from this perspective. And I feel that that's a violation of our culture foods, of our identity, because mm -hmm. It's not just like creating these amazing Asian plates or Mexican plates of food. It's understanding the histories and experiences of these groups. And it is, I find it problematic when foodies are um, experts in, in the um, food industry are doing that, like the gentrification of like, oh, we're going to have these. I don't know. Let's put an example. I don't know the from the taco burrito to a wrap yeah like you know like things like that of that nature <laughs> mm -hmm. um and then, then it becomes expensive right one communities are being displaced right because of renovations and you have these new stores that are going to cater to a middle class population even if it's a, a global ma ma majority population the prices are going to increase. That means that, uh, you know, certain communities who don't have ec the economic resources might not have access to it. And I'm not saying like, 
I don't believe in notions of authenticity in terms of food because I believe in the fluidity of food. I believe like, you know, the intention is what matters, right? But when you're completely like stripping away and acknowledging like the land and where the food comes and the people and then selling it at a higher price, there's a complete disconnect already, you know? And I find that, you know, problematic. Totally, because those those restaurants, those trendy upscale restaurants that appropriate um, cultural foods, they're make they're capitalizing off an entire culture that they're also oppressing because you're taking away the business of mom and pop shops that have been around forever. Yes, yes. you know, yeah, that's exactly it. I hopefully got across that in that post. You know, I, you only can only say so much in ten slides, right? <laughs> yes. No, I think he did. Five really because good. it's in English and then it's in Spanish. <laughs> yes. No, I think he did really good. It really that one really caught my eye. Um, I'm always looking for new Indonesian restaurants in LA, and there was this real this new one that opened up like in downtown. And that was usually the Indonesian restaurants are kind of more on the outskirts or in certain pockets, but there was this one in downtown that opened up. It looked really nice, which is also kind of unusual um, because usually it's kind of more of a hole in the wall, which is I love. This one was more upscale and it had like a bar in it and like, oh, interesting. So I'll try it. Right. I went in there and every the dishes were more fusion. They weren't traditionally Indonesian they were charging at least like seven dollars more per plate um this stuff wasn't authentic and then like I asked about the chef and the chef is a white dude that spent like a (laughs) summer in Thailand and Malaysia not even Indonesia so I'm like oh I was so disappointed the food didn't taste as good um and other people say that's exactly people who don't know will indulge and you know they'll love the food which is great if that you know but if you're coming from the community it's like it can be offensive yeah it's it just makes you something doesn't feel right about it and when you made that post I was it kind of like put to words how that feels (laughs) you know because yeah Oh, I could talk to you forever about this stuff. Um, <laughs> when you hear the term body justice, what do you think of? Um, when I think about body justice, I think about food. Uh, I think of that every human being has a right to have access to food. And I, again, like how you started to be treated with dignity and respect. Um, body justice is also recognizing the diversity in body size or colors, <laughs> you know, as, you know, as, as that might say, um, it's so simple to say that yet yeah, it's so hard still, right. Mm-hmm. That every human should have access to food, that we should treat people with respect, dignity and recognize diversities in our bodies. That's like body justice. And yes. I feel that there's still a lot of work. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that stuff, body justice is our birthright. Like yes. the, the things that you just expressed about it. I'm like, yeah, we should, that's like inherent. We should have that. But yeah. 
And, yeah. Well, and also like to feel there's so much to unpack, you know, with your question, you know, but that was just sort of very simple. But you think about body justice. I'm thinking about housing too. Mm-hmm. Like all these human rights that people should have, yeah. you know, the body justice of not feeling threatened because you're um, trans mm-hmm. or that, you know, yeah, that you're from the LGBT community or that you're Muslim, right? That's part of body justice. Like, yeah. Not having fear because of who you are, because of the body that you occupy, because of how you look. Yes. At the very bare minimum, everyone should be able to feel safe in their body. And that's just the minimum. <laughs> yes. And that's the title of your uh, podcast. Why did you come up with that title, that, that po- podcast name? What does it mean to you? Yeah, to me, it's the intersections of all marginalizations and how we feel about our bodies. So, you know, I specialize in eating disorders. And like I mentioned earlier, um, because of my own experiences, really started studying the intersections of ethnic identity and eating disorders. And then um, after that, I started thinking about other marginalizations and eating disorders too, and how how experiences of oppression in all those systems really impacts the way we treat our bodies and other people's bodies. Um, And yes, I I agree that it it ties in everything from like basic needs, housing, human rights, um, you know, police abolition, all the things people don't realize. And I guess in traditional eating disorder treatment, these topics are not talked about. And I wanted to change that. And I also wanted to provide accessible, free knowledge to people that cannot afford therapy or other services, because I think even just having the knowledge is really transformative. So that's I why love, I, I love, I love your work. I love what you're doing at your mission and your intention behind this. Um, and you need to continue doing this because within the eating disorder and anti-dieting, I see that that's something that's missing. I see a lot of these white dietitians, a lot of these white health coaches yeah. creating amazing content, but lacking your analysis. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, same to you. Um, where can listeners find you? Uh, at Dr. Hortense Jimenez on Instagram. I have a TikTok, but I'm not very active. <laughs> I'll have to find you on there. <laughs> yeah, it's just like, uh. so yes, on Instagram, support my work and follow me to build community and to, to, go, to grow together and to dismantle diet culture. Yes, and I will link your Instagram in the show notes for everyone to find you. Thank you so much, Dr. Hortensia. This was amazing. <laughs> Thank you so much for inviting me. I had such a great time.